Good evening. This is Cinema 60. What do you got against booze, honey? Oh, I just don't much see the point in it. Point? Well, it makes you feel good. I already feel good. Anyway, I don't like the taste. What do you like? Chocolate. 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 I'm practically nutty about it. <laughs> Look, the way I hold everything. Uh, ah. Oh, no, thank you. No, I no, like... that's all right. That's fine. But uh... They're special for you. It's chocolate. Go on. Oh, it's good. Mm. It is. Oh, very. Yeah. See what I mean? Brandy Alexander, they call that. Hi, Jenna. It's another guest episode. I'm very excited, Bart. And tonight we have with us Anne Kibbe, a professor of English at Bowdoin College, someone who I can definitely call a, a mentor of mine. She was my, uh, my college advisor when I was in school, and she definitely sent me on the road to, uh, to being something of a, uh, an unofficial film scholar. But uh, Welcome to the show, Anne. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So your uh, your area of expertise is 18th century British literature. Yes. I know I took, I think it was restoration and an 18th century literature class with you. Mm-hmm. And it was challenging, but I enjoyed it. But it wasn't really, there's quite a long distance between... 18th century literature and cinema of the 60s. Uh, so I was hoping tonight we could kind of uh, <laughs> discuss what what the connections might be, or if these are just you know completely separate interests of yours. I mean, I know that you you have taught film classes at Bowdoin. Uh, you currently teach a uh, a film theory course, mm-hmm. and uh, in the past you've you've done a, a first year seminar on film noir. The movie that Anne chose is also not Tom Jones. Funny That's enough. right. <laughs> No, it's <laughs> very contemporary movie. Uh, we might as well spill the beans and and let the audience know that Days of Wine and Roses, the uh, the Blake Edwards film starring Jack Lemmon and uh, and Lee Remick, was your uh, was your pick, mm-hmm. your sixties pick, the mo- movie that you chose to talk about. And yeah, I was I was a little puzzled. It doesn't seem to have much to do with the area of literature that, that you teach or film noir for that matter. So, um, no, no. <laughs> said one of the options would be that, um, these interests are, are unrelated, you know, that I have a kind of restoration and 18th century literature self. And then I have a film self, um, that I, that I pay attention to. Um, and I do think that in some ways that's true, that, that they're just separate kinds of interests, but I do think that one thing that links, those areas is just the the real fascination with the kind of falseness of the self or an attempt to get past the falseness of the self into something um, that's real. I mean, the 18th century is a hyper-theatrical age for um, not just the drama, but for the novel and for poetry as well. It has a real interest in the theatricality of the self. And uh, maybe that's what translates for me into the interest in film. But yeah, you're right. I mean, The Days of Wine and Roses, it's kind of a surprising pick in a lot of ways. It doesn't really correspond to the whole noir world um, that I've been so fascinated with. Although it has, at the very end, I think it has such a tribute to noir. um, When you see that blinking bar sign that flickers on and off, um, in that final scene, when Jack Lemon is watching Lee Remick um, down the street and then looking out the window when she's gone, and you just see that that bar, the neon sign blinking on and off. And I think of all the all the noirs that just have that exact kind of image in them. There are many scenes when things get uh, really ugly in this movie where the, the the noir lighting really kicks in. You've got lots of deep shadows and little spots of light that, you know, in, in noir, it's sort of used to convey the darkness of uh, of man's soul, that sort of thing. And and when things get really bad for these these two alcoholics, we get a lot of, of that sort of noir lighting in this film. Maybe we should jump right into the film right now, because what I really am interested in is talking to you 
about um, what I think maybe connects this movie to, to some of your interests. I should also mention that you've had one book published. Mm-hmm. It's called Transfusion, Blood and Sympathy in the 19th Century Literary Imagination. Yes, that is it. It sounds familiar. <laughs> And so you bring in Bram Stoker's Dracula and and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What is the book about? Well, it is, it's a combination of actual medical history, the the real history of the development of the surgery of blood transfusion in 19th century Great Britain. And then um, I I bring that medical history um, to bear on literature that depicts blood transfusions in the same period. And so I end with Dracula. Dracula has four scenes of blood transfusion in it. And um, so it's it's this great Gothic version of what blood transfusion could be. Um, But I have found a lot of different stories and novels that also depict the operation of blood transfusion in the 19th century. So it, it is a combination of medical history and cultural history and literary history. This book sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's very gruesome. It's very gruesome. (laughs) I love turn of the century and like 19th century medicine is my, it's so fascinating and horrifying. It really is. It really, it's just, it's endlessly interesting. And the book that you're currently working on is about 19th century obstetrics, right? Yes. Yes. And it grew out of the transfusion thing because the transfusionists in 19th century Great Britain were obstetricians because they are the practitioners who are seeing their patients bleed to death all the time. Um, And so they're trying to find a way to treat uterine hemorrhage and childbirth. So that led me to this other kind of medical problem, which is women who had rickets when they were children. Rickets deforms the pelvis. And so they would recover from rickets and they would become pregnant and carry a fetus to term, but they could not deliver that child um, without surgery. But there was no surgery um, that would save the life of the mother and the child. So they had to make a choice between um, what they called sacrificing. That's the word they use over and over, sacrificing the mother or sacrificing the child. And this is in labor. Um, They have to make this decision. So I'm focusing on the ethical and the moral and the philosophical problems, as well as the medical, um, the surgeries themselves. I do recall from the uh, the 18th century literature class that I took with you that uh, that you do seem to have a fascination with the body and the grotesque. Mm-hmm. There's one there's one one poem I remember in particular. I don't know if it was Alexander Pope or or you know one of the lesser known poets, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a, a woman in in her boudoir who's uh, squeezing blackheads in the mirror, and it's talking <laughs> about the worms coming out of her nose. And I just remember you describing that with such glee, and it made it made a <laughs> it made a really strong impression on me. And uh, <laughs> I know what poem you're talking about. It's Jonathan Swift, the ladies' dressing room, right, <laughs> where she leaves oh, all, okay. all of the detritus of her physical self that's left behind. She leaves the room and she's beautiful and all made up and gorgeous. And then a man enters the dressing room. Yes. And he finds all of this kind of residue of her physical self. Yes. <laughs> it's very gruesome. <laughs> so that's that's the main link that that I can see between uh, you know, the, what you're writing about now and, mm-hmm. and the, the classes that I've taken with you. And I can also kind of link that to your interest in film noir because it's sort of about the side of human nature that we don't want to talk about, that you know, that that ugly side of us that rarely gets addressed or that we try and hide, but but noir kind of brings it out in the open. It's about you know people making awful decisions and thinking with their uh, with their genitals instead of their mm-hmm. their uh, their heads and and uh, you know that sort of thing. So I, I kind of make the make the leap there. Do you see any other kind of link? No, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and it's making me think so much of the Days of Wine and Roses and Kirsten's character, which I'm, I, I find so moving and so complex. But when she first, when they have their first date and they're standing, talking by the bay, and she says, you know, that, that it's so filthy up close. She likes to look far out where, where everything seems beautiful. But then she's also, she has this image of a sea monster, you know, that she's kind of expecting this sea monster um, to come up and grab her. And I think that 
in the days of wine and roses and in in noir in general i mean that it is there they are also like horror films and that there is some kind of monster from within or from underneath that does emerge and just sort of take over whatever whatever destiny the character thinks that he or she has in mind that that it just kind of throws this wrench into into everything it's almost like a creature from the black lagoon as well you know this this kind of under undercurrent of horror and shock Wine and Roses, uh, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, is about a young married couple who bond over drinking and sort of becomes uh, the only way they know how to connect to each other and they become alcoholics, they have a child, and it's kind of a downward spiral movie. You know, the, the alcoholism just destroys their lives. Uh, undoubtedly, we will get into spoilers as, as this, uh, <laughs> as, as we, our, the conversation progresses, but we try to at least uh, initially to, to avoid any any spoilers. Knowing how this movie ends takes takes something out of the experience, I think. Mm-hmm. I remembered how the movie ended and watching it again this weekend. It, it sort of changed how I watched the movie. I, I often have a lot of trouble with downward spiral movies because you know, get to the bottom already. Just, mm-hmm. you know, either you're gonna either you're gonna recover from this or you're not. So knowing where this movie's going gave me a different perspective on it. But uh, you know, nevertheless, this movie is absolutely about human beings making exactly the wrong decisions for themselves through, you know, their own dissatisfaction with their lives or their their jobs where they have to go against their morals, but they think in this case the bottle is the way out for them. Um, but, but you know, noir, it's, you know, murdering a husband or robbing a bank or just making a stupid decision that destroys your life. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the pattern that this film follows. So, mm-hmm. so I kind of can see it as a noir in that respect. I think that's right. And also, though, there, there's this slight twist on that as well. I, I'm always fascinated in this movie um, with the way that Jack Lemmon's character, Joe, um, he, he really creates a monster. It is a Frankenstein movie as well. I mean, that he creates this being that he thinks he wants. I mean, and, and then what she turns into ends up being this destructive force that he can't control and he can't repair. But I mean, he really, his deliberate subversion of her sobriety is is so terrifying, um, you know, that, that I'm going to find the drink that will get you. I'm going to find the drink that appeals to the addict in you. And that he does that so deliberately. There, you know, he's, he's his genial self and his smooth talking kind of um, uh, shark, <laughs> but all, you know, but, um, you know, that he's, he's really, he has this in mind. This is what courtship is. This is what seduction is. This is what a date is. Um, but then, I mean, it just turns into this this destructive force that he himself cannot control. That's the hardest thing to take in this movie, the fact that Kirsten's alcoholism is Joe's fault. And uh, I, I never thought of it that way as, a, you know, creating creating a monster as a kind of a Frankenstein story. But that's exactly what it is. And Kirsten's father thinks the same thing. Yeah. As, you know, yeah. you turn my daughter into a monster and... Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. I thought the two most poignant scenes in this movie were when Kirsten has her child and Jack Lemon uh Joe comes in uh already drunk mm-hmm. and she's saying the baby's sleeping and he comes storming in and he says, "What? You know, this is this is unfair. You know, you're not drunk. I can't have fun with you. I don't mm-hmm. get it." blah blah blah. You know, he's he's going off and then 
uh, ends up, you know, slamming around to such a point and screaming. And and he he makes a point to attack her womanhood mm -hmm. during this outburst and saying, you know, like what kind of uh, I'm trying to remember now. He he, he makes a, a big point about how, um, you know, if you oh, you're you won't drink, you're going to lose your figure. You're too be you're you know, you're you're wasting your time breastfeeding and, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to starts attacking her as as both a mother and a woman and a sex object and absolutely everything. And then later on in the film, once the the shoes on the other foot and Kirsten is the one who is having the harder time and, and he's trying to get sober. The first thing that she goes for is his manhood. Yeah, yeah. You know, she starts to berate him and say, you know, like, what kind of man are you? You can't even have fun. You can't even please me, all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was, I thought, particularly interesting because I think there is such a, a peer pressure aspect on top of addiction and on top of just being someone who has this sort of reaction to to this substance, I think that the that peer pressure aspect is really the the gasoline on on the fire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and in some ways, I mean, I'm always wondering as I watch this movie, and I have seen it a bunch of times, and I wonder, is it punishing Kirsten? Is that is that all that it's doing to her and with her? Is she just this kind of image of, you know, here's the woman who goes off the rails, and when women go off the rails. There's no getting them back on the rails and they become these monsters themselves. They're hideous. They're over-sexualized. Is, is the movie doing that to her and with her or, or is it more complicated than that? And, you know, I always keep thinking of that line um, in that second scene that you're discussing when she attacks his masculinity and when she's saying, well, I don't, you know, you can't, you, you can't please me. You can't make me happy. Are, you know, are you a man? But then she says, can't you hear a woman calling to you? I think that line is just so astonishing. And, and it kind of, I think you feel how much is embedded in that. It's not just a kind of um, holding up her sexual self as something to be loathed and feared, um, but also something to be sympathetic towards and feel like there's a truth in that. Um, you know, can't you hear a woman calling to you? Uh, that line for me is worth the entire movie. I mean, I think it's really, it's so powerful. And in that scene, Blake Edwards takes a lot of pleasure in really presenting Kirsten as she has no makeup. She's, you know, she's been on a several day bender at this point. Mm -hmm. So she's a mess. She looks, you know, as terrible as it's possible for Lee Remick to right, look, right. Uh, which, is, which is not that terrible, no. but, you know. <laughs> But I, I think you know there's a there's a certain kind of glee taken with that line, like don't you hear a woman talking to you? And here is this woman on this bed who's a mess, and it's like it, this is not you know this was never his vision of womanhood mm -hmm. anyway, and presumably not the audience's. Mm -hmm. So there is a certain amount of disgust that's supposed to go along with with you know how we receive that line mm -hmm. from her. Mm -hmm. So when did you first see this movie? The first time I saw it, it must have been on television. And that was the way that we encountered movies back then. We, we, we would just turn on the TV and see whatever happened to be on. Um, and that meant as a child, you saw a lot of things that you didn't understand. Um, you know, a lot of things were very puzzling. And so I think this movie haunted me a lot um, because I, it, it was like a horror film. It was a frightening movie. I didn't fully understand what was going on in it, um, but I had images from it really stuck in my head. Um, the bouncing on the bed, of course, a young person seeing mm -hmm. this movie would, would focus on those kinds of moments. But Obviously, that wasn't a gleeful, happy, bouncing on the bed. There was all of this terror involved. Um, you know, the movie that I would compare the memory to is also seeing um, whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um, <laughs> thinking, you know, just not, not understanding what is going on in this film. I don't get it, but it is absolutely terrifying to me. Um, so that was my first encounter with it, I think was, you know, maybe I was nine, 10, um, and it was on television. Um, and then finally, when I got to see it again, I could um, finally understand what actually was happening instead of having it be overlaid by my child's nightmare vision of it. But that, you know, it makes me think I, I saw what the tagline was for the film when it was released. And I think that, that it's really kind of wonderful. It says this in its terrifying way, is a love story. 
And I think, you know, again, that, that emphasis on the terror of it in its terrifying way, this is a love story, because I don't really think that's completely accurate. I think the terror part is accurate. <laughs> I don't think the, right. the love story part, <laughs> I'd say it's more like, this is not a love story. This is a horror film. Or at least not a love story between two people. Right. A love story between a person and and the bottle, mm-hmm. maybe. But mm-hmm. um, I can also see how these th- these movies, whatever happened to Baby Jane and Days of Wine and Roses, seeing Jack Lemmon, uh, you know, jumping on the bed and acting like a child whenever he is drunk. Mm-hmm. It really associates um, being drunk with childish behavior and the inability to behave like an adult. And I could see how that would, would really strike a child watching this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, whatever happened to baby Jane, of course, Betty Davis is, you know, this child star who continues to be that child star for, you know, into old age. Right, right. So I could see, you know, it, it, that makes a lot of sense. And the whole aspect about why they drink, there's there's always this idea of like, well, it makes me feel good, <laughs> you know. So there's also that sort of childish um, attitude presented in these characters, where the reason why why um, Jack uh, Joe it's so hard Jack and Joe, um, the reason why why Joe drinks, he says initially, and why he how he gets Kirsten to drink is saying. Well, you know, you know how you feel good. You can feel good all the time as long as you have a full bottle, you know. Right, right. It's magic time. Magic time. I know that phrase, that magic time and hit me again. Yeah, over and over. <laughs> over, over and over again. And also those that, that comment too, um, Jenna, both of those comments um, about you know, the, the childishness and feeling good. There is also that way... You know, Blake Edwards, we often associate him with comedy itself. I mean, we think of him as a comic director a lot of the time. And I love in this movie how he just, he, he does have all of those comic impulses. You know, they're, they're, the drunk scenes always begin, you know, as kinds of your expectations of a comic drunk scene, especially with the elevator you know, cutting off the tulips and <laughs> things like that. And, but, <laughs> but, he hold, but, he, but he plays them out and plays them out until, of course, they completely curdle. You know, that the comedy itself curdles and turns into frightening scene or the unpleasant scene, the ugly scene. Um, so he pushes the comedy into that other realm. And I really, I really like that about that. And the satire too. I mean, that Joe, he drinks out of self-loathing. I mean, that's very clear. That's one of that his character right from the beginning is just so, um, so articulate about his self. He calls himself a pimp and a garbage man and a eunuch um, in a harem. There's the masculinity piece again. <laughs> um, and, you know, his mm-hmm. loathing of his job and, and the satire on, public relations. Um, and again, it could it could just be a satiric film. I mean, you could imagine that Blake Edwards could do, you know, Will Success, Spoil, Rock Hunter, or whatever, whatever that name is, <laughs> that film, yeah. you know, they, or, you know, How to Succeed in Business, a satire on that world. But it, instead, you know, he turns it, again, he holds it into that kind of self-loathing. There's, there's that, that real confrontation with with the ugliness of the world it's it's immorality it's um it's sleaziness um, that i i think is really is is really powerful and all, but also very funny the covington farms i mean he has great satirical moments that you could imagine being simply comic but the loathing is so sincere and so real in those that it 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 won't let it rest there that's a great point about how he he did he didn't like I agree completely he shot this like a comedy and there's in a way it's like almost frustrating to watch sometimes because things get so over the top and they get so you, you know they're they're sort of playing out as you said they're playing out in a comedic fashion and then they end up curdling and you sort of sit there like well what, what am I meant to feel <laughs> um and it's not it, it's it's it does seem to come from this place of a little bit, I think, that we're very used to seeing drunkenness. There's only two types of drunkenness. There's drinking alone, which is bad. And then there's drinking with people, which is good. You know, like it's this sort of very simplistic uh, scenes that we end up seeing typically in the film. And and, and in the 60s in general was obviously a time of, of 
booze gone wild. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) there's plenty of of movies that get even misinterpreted. Like I always think about La Dolce Vita, how people somehow manage to miss the point of that movie and think it's like actually about La Dolce Vita. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in this one, yeah, it it walks this weird line where you can't tell if it was on purpose or not. But I think that actually is, is less about the decisions being made by Blake Edwards as much as it's about our own expectations. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I think it's arguable that you can say that, like, do people go as nutty as Jack Lemon is? But I, you know, like I, I, that didn't strike me as false so much as it was, as you mentioned, trying to be more of a horror movie. It was trying to play up the terror of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the shower, for example, that when Kirsten's father puts her in the shower and we see the shower right. and, and, um, you know, you can't see that now and not think of Psycho. <laughs> yeah. Two years after Psycho, this came out. Yeah, there was yeah. definitely a reference to that. Mm-hmm. It, just casting a comedian in this role is, mm-hmm. you know, sort of plays up that whole idea that at the heart of comedy is is this self-loathing, is this sort of depression. And, the, you know, the comedy is sort of a way to, to deal with life in a way that booze is sort of a way to deal with uh, disappointments in life. Mm-hmm. So it, it does, I think Jack Lemon was really effective casting in this. He does, you know, there are moments where he does a little bit too much of his Jack Lemon mugging mm-hmm. for my comfort, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's still, he really nails it. Like in the, in the scenes where he's uh, breaking all the, the flower pots in the greenhouse mm-hmm. or he's, you know, freaking out in the, in the sanatorium where he's uh, got the DTs, they are over the top. And, you know, it's, it's a brave, performance from him Mm -hmm. he gets to go far more extreme than lee remick does she's fantastic but she Mm -hmm. gets to sort of play it down a bit he he goes over the top in in quite a few scenes in this and it's this odd combination of comedian just (laughs) going too far and 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 horror it sort of manages to combine the two things really effectively Mm -hmm. yeah and it is as if it you know this is his character from the apartment which is 1960 and and mm-hmm. and you just turn it up. You just take that same kind of character, but in the apartment, he's still he's allowed to keep all of his charm. You know, he and he's filled with loathing. But then by the end of the film, you feel well, he's he's going to redeem himself. He's going to be a better person. Um, you know, it 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 still retrieves him or recuperates him. Um, and you know, certainly at the you know we feel that the. Joe character in the Days of Wine and Roses is coming out as a better person, but it it doesn't it doesn't leave his boyish charm intact, <laughs> you know. But it is as if it's the same character in the apartment, um, just kind of um, intensified a little bit. Right. Have you watched the original version of this movie, which was a TV movie with Cliff Robertson and and Piper Laurie, no. directed by uh, John Frankenheimer? Oh. Uh, came out in 1958. It's supposed to be great, but I I found it on YouTube, but the it was out of sync, so I didn't. Yeah. You know, it was too yeah, yeah. too difficult to watch. It's um, I mean, I'm not sure. It's I didn't try too hard to find a nice version of this, but it's not it, not too easy to find. Mm-hmm. But I, from from what I understand, people who uh, you know, know both seem to prefer the original TV version mm-hmm. of this. Oh, so it was, that's um, interesting. I'll have to look and see if I can find that anywhere. No, I haven't. I haven't seen it. But uh, at times, this movie does kind of devolve into sort of a TV movie. It gets a little preachy. It's mm-hmm. sort of when Joe goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. it sort of seems like a, a well-intentioned mm-hmm. advertisement mm-hmm. for for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, Jack Klugman shows up as this sort of angel of mercy. And he uh, is, is just there, it has no function in the movie other than to just support Joe and help him and, and you, know, t- you know, take care of whatever he needs to get through this thing. You can kind of see. I mean, I, I I'm not I'm no expert on this golden age of television and, and these TV movies that were made in the '50s that people love. People say are fantastic, but I don't know if they had the same reputation as you know more recent TV movies. You know, Lifetime style, mm-hmm. over over dramatic, you know, preachy sorts of films. But this this movie does occasionally fall into some of those traps. No, absolutely. Be curious to see how many of those were in the original television version of this. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting to see. And that gets at something too about this film that I find really interesting. I mean, it is it's an enormously flawed film. I mean, I think that 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 is the case and I think that one of the reasons that it so feels so flawed is that it really is at war with its own impulses. I think I think that Blake Edwards is at war with 
with his impulses, his, you know, that where the satiric impulses, the comic impulses. And then we have those kinds of um, social problem movie impulses that intrude on that. Yeah, that, that it, it does become, you know, a version of a documentary or something, a public service announcement for AA. Um, and, and it become you know, it looks, the movie looks different. Um, in those sections, you know, it, it looks drained of all of that kind of um, noirish um, black and white um, that that you noted earlier, Bart. I mean, it, it really becomes flattened out. And I do think that that this is a movie that can't really settle anywhere. Um, you know, that that it, and I think that you're right that it's it, you know its intentions are headed in one direction. But I still I think of that bar light. I and mean, does he have to rent an apartment that is on the same corner as a bar? <laughs> I was I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> is there no other apartment in San Francisco? <laughs> You know, but that, that and you know some of the the DT moments are are what remind me most of uh, of Lost Weekend. Yes, the uh, sort of the other classic alcoholism movie directed mm-hmm. by Billy Wilder, who did The Apartment. So right. maybe Blake Edwards did kind of have both both of those Billy Wilder films in mind mm-hmm. when he made this. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of you know, alcoholism movie than than Lost Weekend um, because it's sort of this movie kind of shows the effects of alcoholism on a couple of people over the course of several years and how it destroys their lives. Mm-hmm. And and Lost Weekend is really just focused on this Lost Weekend and how this guy j- it just you know goes as far down into the gutter as a person can go, and uh, you know him trying to work his way back out. Yeah, both of those both of those movies and uh, you know kind of that noir influence uh, I can see in Days of Wine and Roses. Mm-hmm. The the only thing about this movie that sort of bugged me was the fact that they focused so much on Jack Lemmon's character when I think, you know, Lee Remick is like clearly more interesting. <laughs> I, you know, it was sort of a str- everything that happens with her sort of happens off screen. And the same thing, too, that the child gets very ignored, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting choice as well, considering they're going for this sort of heavy melodrama and, and there's nothing, nothing will get your, you know, tug at your heartstrings faster than like putting a crying child in a room. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of an interesting, it, it's, I, I wasn't sure. And it felt like maybe in a way that tied into the AA commercial aspect of this, where you sort of follow Jack Lemon and, and you see that he sort of has pushed her into this, situation that he has been this sort of despicable person and that there is a redemption for him if he's willing to work for it and he's willing to try so I don't know if that was a little bit a part of that decision but I don't know I kind of I would have preferred to have swapped the roles I think Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and it really does seem I think again one of the things that that really interests me about this film is and we're back to the Jack Klugman character too that this really is like recovery is a, is male bonding, you know, that, that, that it's kind of, there's no room for her in recovery. And, and it is as if it, it excludes that that relationship itself is dependent on excluding her from recovery. Although, you know, all of the messages, oh no, she can, she can come to this decision herself. And, you know, you, of course you want to save her, but there is this, you know, Klugman's character is really very clear. You you have to leave her behind, and you know they there. It's almost you know as if they that it that recovery is this very masculine um, relationship that that two men can have that relationship with each other. Um, you know, you're you're the one in recovery. I'm your sponsor, um, but that it it really has to exclude um, the woman from that picture. It does some interesting things with gender expectations, mainly that you expect the whole time for Kirsten's maternal instincts to kick in yeah. and you know, for her to get herself together because there's a child at stake here. Mm-hmm. That's where most films would go, yeah. but this does the opposite. And I, I think that that's, she's been turned into such a monster at this point that I, I guess it makes sense that that's how the story had to play out, but it sort of puts Joe in the mother role, Mm -hmm. which uh, also refers back to another Billy Wilder film, Some Like It Hot, where uh, (laughs) where Jack Lemmon, you know, is 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 thrust into this uh, this role of of a female and and embraces it. Mm -hmm. There there are a lot of ways where where he really was the perfect choice for 
for this <laughs> right. really depressing film. <laughs> right. But it also, it, it, it's sort of mm. to, to build on what Anne was saying, though, like that aspect to me, even though it is really interesting for them to have a man, as you say, take over this, the role of a woman and a, and a mother, a traditional mother. But it, it also feels very much like you can't leave a, this work to a woman, you know, <laughs> like a true man mans up and becomes a mother. You know? <laughs> right. And it also makes me think of, of Kirsten's own father and that whole relationship. I mean, the, that she can't be a mother in the film because she still is a child. She still is the child who, that wants the love of this, this very hard, unrelenting father figure. And, you know, there's that whole, the scene when she's drunk and he, and she climbs into bed with her father. I mean, uh, <laughs> and then, and then, you know, there, her daughter comes into the room. And she pushes her daughter off. Yeah. The bed. Yes. That's my yeah. father. That's my, you know, that, that she's the, still the child and she's, you know, looking at her daughter there as a rival sibling, not as someone, something, you know, that she should be taking care of or mothering, but that whole relationship with the father is, is, its own kind of terror. And we're so used to bad movie mothers, <laughs> you know, whether it's Mrs. Bates or, <laughs> or any, you know, you have this whole line of movie mothers that are very hard. Um, but the, that movie father, he's a, he's a complicated character too, that the, the refusal to give love is, is very powerful. And there's so much backstory there about her relationship with her father that they never reveal what, you know, what actually happened to her mother and what, uh, right. what her sheltered childhood was, was really like. Mm -hmm. You can imagine all sorts of things and the incestuous undertones of that one scene where she climbs in bed with her father is, uh, that sort of suggests that all sorts of awful things that could have been happening when, when she was a child, mm -hmm. I think. And, and that just sort of adds to her monstrousness. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes us so revolted by her in that scene is his disgust at her, you know, that he responds with a kind of sexual dis disgust, you know, that, that that's the, that his sense of the inappropriateness of what she's doing, it makes the scene inappropriate. Yeah, it's his shame. Yeah, yeah. Because I've just felt bad for her, actually. Yeah. I mean, that was like part of that scene to me. It, she just felt like a child and he took it in this really weird way. Yeah, yeah, that it's like his sexual loathing that he is kind of making that a feature of her. And, and that whole, it brings me back to that beginning, you know, when they're by the bay and she says she had a dream that like her, mm -hmm. that she had died and her father picks up her body and all he does is talk. And yeah. she's like, I never hear my dad talk normally. And so... That's a very clear example of the fact that the only way to, to that he can love his daughter is if she's like idealized, you know, dead. <laughs> I know that that you told me, Anne, that the '60s is not particularly your your area of interest as far as cinema goes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I do know that you're a Frank Sinatra fan. Yes, I am. And. Uh, <laughs> I, I, how, how do you feel about the movies that uh, he was making well, during the 60s? You know, it's funny, the, the Sinatra movie I just rewatched recently was The Man with the Golden Arm, which itself, I think, is an influence on this film. Um, you know, you have the, the, that bravura yeah. performance of addiction and Frank Sinatra, like Jack Lemmon, they, they made much of the fact that they did research, <laughs> you know, that they went um, and observed people in order to pre prepare for their roles and everything. And you know, so I think that I think The Man with the Golden Arm, it actually is a terrific film. And I think he's great in it. I think he truly is. But a lot of times he is so wooden on the screen. It's painful to watch him, I think. Some Came Running is another film that I think he's really terrific in. And of course, From Here to Eternity, he is that is a great performance. But then when I think of uh, these other movies like Robin and the Seven Hoods and things like that, they're, they're just abominations. <laughs> they're, you know, terrible. I, mean, I think the film version of Pal Joey is, is very rancid and charmless. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really give him a lot of points um, on the movie score. It's, I think <laughs> those are exceptions. I think the man with the golden arm, some came running from here to eternity. I feel like the, this movie was almost created because of Sinatra and because of, you know, the, the popularity of things like the rat pack and the popularity of being drunk as a fun joke mm -hmm. and a good time. And like, that's the only thing about 
the commercial aspect of this movie that I'm kind of okay with because it feels like a movie that really did need to get made mm -hmm. at this time in particular. Mm -hmm. This was a this was a well received movie. Mm -hmm. I think it did help popularize um, Alcoholics Anonymous as an option. Yeah, yeah, I think that it. I think that it did. I mean, it you know maybe wasn't one of the top box office hits of the year, but it was you know it was definitely a profitable film, and a lot of people saw it. And most importantly, every performer it was nominated for every Academy Award, and I think the Johnny Mercer song is the only thing that actually won. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it got a lot of uh, critical approval, and it you know got a lot of attention for that reason. And I did read that Alcoholics Anonymous did get a real boost, you know, became a bit more legitimized because of this film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and since you mentioned the Johnny Mercer song, that's another thing that I just, uh, thinking about film noir, that connection to the move up to Otto Preminger's Laura, um, because we have the poem in Laura that Waldo Lidecker recites is the days of wine and roses. They're not long, the days of wine and roses. That's the when he's doing his radio program at the end of Laura. Ah. Um, that's the poem that Waldo Lidecker is reading. And then you have that pulled. <laughs> and I think it's Johnny Mercer who must have who must have made that connection. And he wrote Laura, the words for Laura. Um, and then he wrote the days of wine and roses. But there is like this throwback to this this other noir there, this little kind of musical. And the way that the Mancini score is just like the score for Laura and that you just hear over and over again variations on the title song playing in a bar, playing in the background in you know, one mode, in another mode. Um, so it's it, it really does echo that film sonically, not not in terms of themes or anything, but just in terms of the music itself. Yeah, and at this point, Blake Edwards had definitely thrown in completely with Henry Mancini. I don't think uh, it'd be decades before he made another movie without a yeah. Henry Mancini soundtrack. Mm -hmm. But it is it is one of the one of the things about this movie that makes it most obviously a, a Blake Edwards film who is known for comedies. He's, I mean, I guess he got to start doing the Peter Gunn show mm -hmm. on TV. So that has, you know, kind of a thriller noir aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But, and also the, the same year, 1962, he did experiment in terror with Lee Remick, which is not quite the horror film that the title makes it sound. It is more of a neo-noir thing, but you know, 1962 seemed to be the one year where he really tried to stretch his legs a bit and do melodrama and thrillers and you know just kind of went back to comedies after that and the Mancini's respective scores reflect it's always identifiably Mancini mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. but the, the style of the music really does kind of reflect whatever mood Blake Edwards seems to be in at, at any given time no that's right that's right this is sort of random but um I find it interesting in a weird way that um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the play came out this year. And there's something about this movie and that play that I guess it, maybe it's just the fact that they're both sort of toxic couples and toxic love fueled by alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I think this we've said it in quite a few Cinema 60 episodes that uh, getting towards the middle of the 60s really seemed to identify adults with alcoholism and, and the kids were moving on to other things, mm -hmm. pot and LSD and those sorts of things. And I think that uh, a play or a movie like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is you know very much about these are adults, you know, and, and this movie too, that this is the, that this is the way that, that adults deal with their problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the alcohol just causes more problems. Mm -hmm. There is sort of a, a, a sense that things are changing. We've got a better way. Right. It's like, it's just sort of acknowledging finally that alcohol is, is more of an accelerant. And why would you want to make everything worse when you can smoke pot <laughs> <laughs> and chill out, man? And also, in, in, it's interesting to think of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in relation to this. I mean, it's the whole intellectual game that they're playing too. you know, the get the guest and this kind of sadistic game that they're playing. And, and they get all of this energy from that, from what they're doing to other people as well as to themselves. This film really doesn't, it has a certain sadism in its satire on the whole PR world, you know, which we also feel is a satire somehow on Hollywood as well. You know, the fakeness, the selling, the making people look good who don't deserve it. You have that kind of satiric edge, but you you don't have, it's, it's not a sadistic movie in that way 
all of their destruction is just turned in on themselves very sadly. You know, and we feel, of course, that, that she really can't free herself from that. And we hope that he has. I think there is a little bit of sadism in that scene when Joe meets Kirsten's father for the first time and he's trying to describe what he does yes. in public relations. And, yes. and he's saying that when companies do something good, I try and make people know that so that, you know, know what good things this company has done. And the father says, well, what if they do something bad? And yeah. I think it's it's actually Jack Lemmon's finest moment in the film when he tries to talk his way out of, you know, he stumbles over himself, mm -hmm. not wanting to say, well, yeah, that's exactly what I do. I try and make bad people look good. Right. And uh, yeah, that's probably the, the harshest bit of satire in the movie. And it is, you know, sort of uncomfortable and <laughs> a little bit sadistic watching Jack Lemmon squirm mm -hmm. in that scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the verdict, you know, the father, I don't understand that kind of work. Yeah. Just shutting it down. Yeah. Charles Bickford, who plays Kirsten's father, mm -hmm. does a pretty amazing job in this film. You know, as a, as a man of few words, he breaks down convincingly. He's, he's yeah. one of those actors that I realize I've seen in so many things. I think a lot of Westerns in particular, mm -hmm. but I've never really, you know, I know the name and, and the face is familiar, but I couldn't say, oh, yeah, he was this in this movie and this in this movie. Mm -hmm. But he's memorable enough in this that I, I feel like I... Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's somebody I should, uh, from here forward, I probably will, will pay more attention when he's on the screen. Mm -hmm. great the no, movie. no, I think he's, he is really terrific. I mean, it, because it is, it's a very one-dimensional role when it comes right down to it. You know, you're just the hard father, the ungiving. You you love your daughter, but you can't show love, you know, and, and, but, but you're right. I mean, that scene when he finally breaks down is, he does that very, very well. You know, you really feel all of that sadness in him that he's been keeping inside. And he's been lying in that scene. He's been lying to Jack Lemmon about where Kirsten is. And then he finally reveals the truth. And yeah, I think he is very effective. He's so effective that I had a I had a hard time forgiving Jack Lemmon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was my I guess like maybe another thing that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth, even though I know that the whole commercial here is for this idea that you, you know, you can have forgiveness. And, and I don't think that that's a bad message. <laughs> but I was just like, you know, you really did ruin her life. Like you really are a monster. Like it was, it was kind of rough to, I mean, I understand that also it's like, oh, this happens in real life. You know, this isn't exactly like, this isn't made to be cruel particularly. It's just, it, it just, this made me feel like, well, why are we following this guy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, when he says to Jack, I mean, you, you made my daughter a drunk right from the beginning. I mean, we see that 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 wasn't an accident. I mean, that actually that he that it was a deliberate move. I mean, he wasn't necessarily thinking I'm going to destroy this woman this way. But he, but right. the, you know, but the deliberate um, steps that he takes, you know, like, yes, I, I know what drink for you, Brandy Alexander, that's the thing that will lead you into this world. He's constantly trying to feel better about himself. So him, you know, forcing the alcohol on her is mm -hmm. sort of him, another way he's trying to feel better about himself. Well, I'm a drunk and, and mm -hmm. it's great. So uh, she should be too. Right. Right. And we should all we we'll just have fun all the time. It'll be magic all the time. Magic time. That's right. Oh, but that also <laughs> makes me think of one little moment that we didn't talk about, which early on, you know, they have their version of meet cute, um, where he thinks that she's someone she isn't. But, you know, that boat full of the dates for the potentate, um, you know, all the blondes that he's kind of gathered together. And I love the silence of that scene, you know, that <laughs> silence of that boat, um, you know, that they're, that them just looking at him. Um, and again, I think that, you know, that's taking the comedy of it because it, it is funny, but also just pushing it into this real discomfort instead of simple comedy. Well, I love that it's like, you know, you see him in the bar calling up a girl like, hey, you want to have a good time? And then you see that that boat scene really shortly after. And it's like, yeah, it's so clearly putting on the facade on mm -hmm. display for everyone to see. I mean, mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't just people having a good time. This is everyone getting together and getting dressed up in order to look like they're having a good time. <laughs> and he really is a pimp. And he knows that about himself, you know, and the, when he's trying to gather up all seven girls and he says, I've got two girls missing. <laughs> you know, but he's confronted with what, you know, what he really has arranged for all along. Again, it's like the apartment. 
it is a really fun extended meet cute and like the apartment it has a lot to do with uh, with elevators yes. but uh, you know immediately, <laughs> immediately following um you know him meeting her for the first time on the boat you know him trying to apologize to her for confusing her for for one of the the girls mm-hmm. you know he brings the peanut brittle and it's a really like interestingly choreographed and kind of amusing how there's just this back and forth they go down the elevator, up the elevator, and each time they travel on the elevator, their their relationship to each other kind of changes a little bit. And mm-hmm. I, uh, for the first half of this movie is especially good. It is when it kind of mm-hmm. turns into a, a movie of the week that it loses a little something for me, but mm-hmm. it's still powerful. Mm-hmm. It's still, it gets its message across really well. Yeah, yeah. And I also enjoyed seeing cinema's Felix Unger in scenes with TV's uh, Oscar Madison. <laughs> The, the odd couple. Yeah. It, it, for for a second, you know, I saw them together, and I was thinking, "This is making me think of something." What is it? And I said, "Oh, the odd couple, like the two different versions right. together." Right. I, I wonder if Tony Randall would have wanted this part. Yeah, he could have pulled it off. I mean, there is there is something have. very similar about about their personalities. He, I guess, he doesn't have the range that Jack Lemmon does, though. So. Right. Right. Yeah, so uh, so thanks for coming on and talking to us, Anne. That was a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Anne. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've really had a great time, and I really I loved watching the film with this in mind to think about you know what is it about this movie that really gets to me, even though I do think it is such a flawed film. I think many, many more people should watch it, and especially now with all of this talk about how the coronavirus is driving us all to drink privately. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we can. It we is can have true. A little, a little bid for sobriety wouldn't hurt anyone. <laughs> it is fun. I finished watching this movie, and then I went to prepare uh, a whiskey sour for myself and my wife, and and you know, it really gave me kind of second thoughts about. Yeah. <laughs> about oh, what, what am I doing with my life? But, but I think at the same time, at the same time, the alcoholism on display in this movie is so extreme that it kind yeah. of gives casual alcoholics like myself a a, a, a way out an excuse you can say oh well it never gets that bad for me so i don't have a problem but uh, but that's what was really good about this movie is that the fact that it gets extreme but it doesn't start extreme and i that's i did like that a lot about this that this and especially in the end when there's lines where jack lemon literally says i can't believe it happened to me mm-hmm. so it is sort mm-hmm. of like it does make you feel bad about um realizing all the times that you've poured a drink instead of you know confronting your feelings <laughs> i'm talking about myself right now well i don't drink so i'm the kirsten at the beginning <laughs> don't, talk, don't hang out with us and we don't want to ruin you just get me a brandy alexander and i'll be off the charts no, no. <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.